Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for Jesus, and we want to thank you for his grace. And uh, as we continue on in this series, uh, Lord, we prayed uh, a few weeks ago for, for some people in our church for uh, supernatural physical healing. And, and today, um, I'm praying for something a little bit different, more of a, a spiritual healing, I, I guess, of, of our anger and, and our wrath and our angst. And I pray that you would help us to see it, repent of it, and let it go. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, there's an old uh, preacher joke about a woman who was walking along uh, the beach and she was contemplating how badly she had been treated in her divorce settlement. And she was stewing on it and getting angrier and angrier. And all of a sudden she sees this lamp kind of come up on the beach and she starts to rub it a little bit. And a genie comes out and the genie very quickly determines that uh, she, she's pretty angry and she's uh, a lack of forgiveness. And he kind of wants to teach her a lesson. She says, I'm going to give you your three wishes. That's the deal. You're going to get your three wishes. But whatever you ask for, I'm going to give tenfold to your ex-husband. And she's like, well, okay, I, I'm, I'm kind of hurting financially. And so the first thing she asks for is a billion dollars, and, and she gets it. And sure enough, her, her ex-husband you know, get, gets $10 billion. And she says, I'd like a home on the beach, a, a beautiful home. And she gets it. And sure enough, her ex-husband gets uh, 10 beautiful homes on the beach. And she's, this is not helping her bitterness um, or her anger. She already feels like she's been mistreated. So he says, you got one kind of wish left, and she thinks, and she thinks, and she thinks, and she said, all right, my last wish is that I would give birth to twins, <laughs> right? So I, I don't think she exactly lear learned the lesson, but I want to start out today with a question of what makes you angry? Uh, what brings about your wrath? What, what really kind of kind of sets you off? And I saw a recent survey of the top things that make us angry, and um, on that list were people talking to you while you're trying to work. Uh, people talking during movies was really, really high on the list. Uh, screaming children was, was right up there. Um, whoever the president is at the time is always up, up on the list on, on either side of the equation. Uh, nosy people, bad drivers, slow loading screens on the computer, liars, people who take credit for your work and being blamed for something you didn't do. Now, uh, we're in this series right now where we're kind of working through Proverbs, and we talked last week about the Proverbs are really interesting because one of the kind of keys to Bible study is making sure you know what happens before and after a certain text, and Proverbs really doesn't work that way. Each kind of text is a standalone kind of nugget of truth, nugget of wisdom, and Proverbs has quite a bit to say on the subject of anger and wrath. For instance, it says in Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Right? And I think this is how you can see anger kind of escalating in a conversation. There's this principle that says that we tend to match the emotion uh, and, and the feeling of the person that we're talking to. So you can kind of see how if a person's angry and you decide to match their anger, and then they're matching your anger, and it's a one-up on who's the angriest, uh, and in a culture that is so angry, we just have a tendency to do this. We have a tendency to match anger and match emotion. But the Proverbs is teaching us if we can find a way to dial it down just a bit, right? Dial it down and give a gentle answer to somebody that's angry and wrathful. If we can provide a gentle answer, it dial, they'll match that as well. 
They'll match our gentleness and it will turn away wrath and anger. Proverbs 10:12 says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. So researchers have analyzed more than 150,000 pop songs between 1965 and 2015. And over that time, the, the appearance of the word love in the top 100 hits has roughly fallen in half. Meanwhile, the number of songs that contain angry emotions uh, like hate and anger and animosity, stuff like that, uh, also rose by about that same amount. Now, I get that a lot of that is Taylor Swift, all right? A lot of it is. <laughs> but not all of it is Taylor Swift, right? And so there's this anger kind of permeating. Um, and pop music isn't the only place you see. There's 23 million headlines published between 2000 and 2019. Um, the headlights deno uh, headlines denoting anger, fear, disgust, and sadness uh, rose sharply. The Global Peace Index uh, said that riots and strikes and anti-government demonstrations increased from 2011 to 2019 244%. We are a world of widening emotional inequity. The emotional health of our culture is shattering. The emotional health of our culture is shattering. And listen, we live in a culture where a lot of power and money is invested in you being angry and me being angry. Listen to that again. A lot of power and wealth is invested in you being angry. Many politicians run on a platform that is designed, it is designed to make you angry. Social media is designed to stoke your anger and animosity. Even advertising often runs on the platform of you being angry. And if you and I don't think that there are platforms that are out there that are strategically trying to make us angry for their own economic gain, I think you and I are really naive. But I can't just blame the entities, can I? Because I have a tendency within myself, when it comes to my anger, to nurse it on my own, to make it grow. The Bible says love, on the other hand, will cover over it. Consider 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Look at this. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We get a choice, guys. We get a choice on what we're going to nurture what we're going to stoke. Are, are we going to nurture love that will become, you notice that all of those, the attributes are different. What's not the same is love is mentioned before all of them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. So are we going to kind of stoke the flame of love or are we going to nurture the opposite, which leads to the opposite? We have a choice in this. It's easy to blame the entities like, man, I get on social media and I just leave angry. Or I watch the news and I leave angry. I watch advertising and I leave angry. Yes, that's exactly what they wanted to have happen. They want you angry because angry people apparently spend more money and vote. So yes, it, the, the end result is the same. But I can't blame the entities. 
I have to decide in my life what I'm going to stoke and what I'm going to nurture and what I'm going to allow to thrive in my life. You may remember there's a scene in Alice in Wonderland, the Disney movie, um, where the Queen of Hearts enters the picture, and she is really, really angry. Go and take a look at it on the screen. Have you ever noticed how anger can begin to sound a lot like entitlement? I'll ask the questions around here. I'll ask the questions around here. At home, who did not flush the toilet? But, but, but no, I'll, I'll ask the questions. At work, who made copies without replacing the paper? Well, well I, I, I'll ask the questions around here. When you're at a restaurant, right? Where, where on earth is my food? And they're trying to explain, no, no, no. I'll ask the questions around here. Anger and entitlement start to sound a lot like the same attribute. And it's really not a bad description of where we are as a culture, where every single person has the attitude, I'll ask the questions. Who painted my roses red? I'm angry. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered person does foolish things, and the one who devises evil, uh, evil schemes is hated. And Proverbs 22 says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one who is easily angered, or you may learn from their ways and get yourself ensnared. Right? We probably all ought to cancel social media after reading that verse immediately. Right? <laughs> Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person, right? That's how social media exists. But the truth of the matter is, is that anger leads us down a bad path. And this is absolutely true. Anger is a liar. Um, anger tells me if I hold on to my anger, it's going to hurt them. But in reality, when I hold on to my anger, it hurts me. So when is the last time you met a fully satisfied, content, and joyful angry person? The truth of the matter is it's a liar. It says, hold on to me and it will be okay. But it is not okay. It is not okay. In addition to that, anger, in addition to hurting me because it's not all about me, but in addition to that, anger is not the pathway God has set forth for his creation becoming what he desires. We believe as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, that God is at work shaping our world and making it what he desires to be. And anger is not the path forward to creation becoming what God desires for it to be. Anger is just not the pathway. Anger is the pathway to, to hurting that process and, and keeping God's creation from fulfilling its full potential. Here's how Jesus said it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. It's a good law. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone that is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment, and anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled uh, to, to them, and then come and offer your gift. So let's start with this truth, right? What Jesus is not saying is that all anger is bad, right? As a matter of fact, we know from the Bible that anger is a God-given emotion and that God often re responds to injustice and a wrong committed against someone or abuse. God responds to that with anger. When someone is mistreated, hurt, abused, God responds to that. And his response, as you read through the Bible, uh, is not always a happy response, right? Right? 
Sometimes it's appropriate to be angry. Now, the word used for that type of anger is a Greek word, thumos, if I can kind of walk you through some Greek real quick. And it describes a type of anger that rises up in me quickly and then is addressed and goes out very quickly. In other words, it's a type of anger that you see something on the news that maybe an injustice has been done or a wrong has been committed and it wells up inside of you, you deal with it, and then it goes out quickly. That's thumos. The Greek word Jesus uses here is a Greek word orge, and it describes an anger, the anger of a person who nurses their wrath, who keeps it warm, and they brood over wrongdoing for a long, long time. They refuse to let it go. So there are these tests about whether or not an anger that I have is a righteous uh, anger or, or um, a godly anger. And there's several tests you can kind of ask yourself. One is the simmering test, right? Does my anger ever simmer and die? Or is it just consistent and constant? The other test you can give is, do I have a verse test? Righteous anger reacts to actual sin as defined by God in the Bible. So the thing that I'm so angry about, do I have a verse that can accompany it to say, this is why it's righteous for me to be angry? All right, there's the love for others test. That it's not that it's wrong to be angry about something done to you or against you, but a lot of times this type of righteous anger is directed at sins committed against other people, or even if the sin's been committed against you, I'm concerned that they're going to do this to other people, or I'm concerned about the salvation of the person that is doing it. Am I motivated by a love for others? And then the last one is, are my actions, are my actions, not theirs, are my actions righteous? Righteous anger is always self-control. It never loses control. And then the last kind of test is, am I seeking resolution? Am I seeking resolution test? Righteous anger seeks resolution to conflict whenever possible. Now, all that being said, if I can say this in love, because of the culture we live in, and because of our sin nature, and because we're coming out of a pandemic, we're not good at this. Can I say that? Is that okay? We're not good at this. We think we are, but, but we're not. We're not good at this. We, we, for, for me, even I will find that sometimes something has the beginnings of a righteous bent to it, like it's actually an actual wrong that was committed or something sinful was actually done, but very quickly, my anger turns to orge very quickly, right? It, it turns to, in the un- righteous realm. And he goes on to say, Jesus says, that most of the time that our anger finds its way into our relationships is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So most of the time, it finds its way into the way we communicate with each other. And he gives two examples. One example he gives is Raqqa. Raqqa was an insult in the first century that was meant to convey contempt. It was to insult someone out of anger and to call them things like a brainless idiot or dumb. Both of those would be good translations of the word raka. If you want to know what raka looks like in our culture, go to literally any internet article you can find. It could be about LeBron James or it could be about politics. It could be about the pandemic and go to the comment section. You will be depressed in five minutes but you will very quickly learn what raka looks like in our culture. That because of your opinion, 
Because of what you believe, because of what you said, you are brainless, an idiot, raka, a fool, right? And that's the example that Jesus goes on to share is it's, it's, uh, it's hurling insults of, of that nature. That's raka. Now, Jesus says that what they're going to be answerable to is they're answerable, answerable to the courts. Now, Jesus is being tongue-in-cheek here. He doesn't mean they're actually going to go to jail. But what he's trying to get us to see is if you were to kind of be in a court of law when it comes to the way you speak to the people in your life, Jesus is asking us to think through this. If I were on court for the way that I speak to my wife or the way that I speak to my kids or the way that I speak to you, if I were on court for that, would I be found guilty or not guilty of raka? And I think it's important for us to think through this every so often because sometimes those of us that have a quick temper when it comes to our words, sometimes we think we have legitimate reasons or justifications for why we do that, that they just know how to push my buttons or they hurt me first or I'm just blowing off steam. They should know I didn't mean it or I was mistreated and wrong first so they had it coming. He says, no, 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 no. If the people in your life were to testify in court about the way that you speak to them, what would your coworkers say? What would your family say? What would your friends say? Would you be guilty or not guilty of the sin of Raqqa? And here's why this is so important. Not that this is cliche, but allow me to say it. Acknowledgement is the first step to recovery. It always is. This is why repentance almost always comes first. Repentance is the Bible's word for acknowledgement. If I can begin to look at my life and say, man, the way I speak to my coworkers or the way I speak to my family, the way I speak to my friends, I'm guilty of raka. I lose my cool and it comes out in my words. Uh, if you can admit that and ask God to help you and empower your heart and your mind, honestly, it goes a long way to healing. Now he goes on to say, it doesn't stop with Raka. He goes on to say, sometimes it comes out in an accusation of you fool. And this is a little bit cut from a little different cloth than Raka, but the Greek word here is um, where we get our English word moron from. Uh, and it's also where we get our English word morals. So in the first century, to call someone uh, a fool was to identify them by a poor moral choice that they had made. And we do this in our culture as well. He stole, he is forever a liar. Uh, he, he, he stole, he's forever a thief. He lied, he's forever a liar. That's who he is. They, they are just their addiction. They are just their sin. They are just this thing that they, did, that they did. And it describes a person who in anger uses a person's choices against them to identify them and denigrate them and beat them down. It, like I said, it's where we get our English word, that person's a moron. That person's a moron. It's where we get that from. The choice you made, the decision you made was so dumb, and now I'm going to identify you by it. Here's the danger of that. That's not where the Bible says your identity is found. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the first man and the first woman, and it says he created the man in his image. He created them uh, in his image, and then it goes on to say, male and female, he created them. This is God's way of saying that, hey, hey, that person you're calling a moron, that person you're calling a fool, that person you're calling a brainless idiot, that person is my child. I created them. 
They are made in my image. Now, they may be acting sinfully or wrong, but that is not their identity when it comes to God. Their identity is that they have his DNA coursing through their veins. So because of Christ and because of God's creation, you are God's son, you are God's daughter. That is your identity. Let me drill down a little bit deeper. You are not an idiot. I am sorry someone said that to you. You are not an idiot. You are God's created child. You are not dumb. You are the son or daughter of the king of kings. You are not a moron. You are an image bearer of the king. That is where our value and our worth and our identity comes from. And this is the insidiousness insidiousness. Sometimes of what happens in our culture is we are identity shaping in a sinful way. And we are calling people things that they are not. You're an idiot. No, you are not. You're a moron. No, you are not. You are really dumb. No, you are not. You are the created son or daughter of God. Now, you may disagree with their thinking. Fine. But we don't have to go into identity shaping because we disagree with people's thoughts, or actions. The storyline goes on that 4,000 years later, Jesus came and he saw us in our sin and he saw us separated from God. And the text, the, the Bible says that Jesus went to the cross and he paid for our sins. Now, it is important that we recognize our sin. That's part of the gospel. But because of the gospel, we, our identity is not shaped by our sin. Because of our identity, we are forgiven Because of Christ's work, excuse me, we are forgiven, we are made new, uh, we are set free. So church, I have good news for you. You may have told a lie, you are not a liar. In Christ, that is not your identity. You are a forgiven son. You are a forgiven daughter. You may have made a bad moral decision, but because of Jesus, you are set free from that by his blood. You and I, we are not the sum total of our sins. Because of Jesus, your identity is formed in a different way than that. This is the damaging part of our anger. Sometimes in our anger, we we begin to identity form. We begin to identity form the people around us. And Jesus wants to remind us today that we don't want to chip away at a person's identity. So here's the bad news, and then I'll get into the good news. The bad news is we live in a world that is in an identity crisis. We are in the middle of a crisis where people believe that the number one kind of identity that is driving the train, that is the engine driving the train of their life, is their gender or their sexuality or even their race or their work or their political affiliation. And those are all parts of a person's identity, to be sure. But we need to understand, according to the Bible, the engine driving the train of our life when it comes to identity is that we are sons and daughters of God by adoption through the work of Jesus on the cross. And when that becomes your primary identity, the secondary, secondary identity begins to fall into place on its own. My work and race and sexuality and even gender becomes more clear in the light of God's word, Jesus' example, and his commands. But the number one thing that needs to drive our identity is that we are adopted sons 
and daughters of God. That's the bad news is that we're, we're in an identity crisis. The good news is that there isn't some mysterious force creating confusion on this. What's creating confusion on this is our anger. It's not just our anger, but our anger as a culture is a huge part of it. You say, how is this good news? Well, anger can be repented of. And we can change our ways. Here's what I mean by our anger. We have bought into a lie in American culture. We have bought into a lie that groups people into categories, then makes them our enemy, and chooses to fight. So all of a sudden where people used to be people and you would seek to get to know them and love them and learn more about them, now we don't have people anymore. Now we have categories. And this ideology keeps us from conversating and it keeps us, all of us, from seeing people through the lens of what should be their primary identity. So then we start to see people in terms of their sexuality or their political leaning or their job or their race. It can be any number of things. And all of a sudden, instead of a person, which is what God created them to be, instead of a person, they become a category. And in my experience, we don't, cultures don't often start to categorize people so we can learn who our friends are. There is a little bit of that. But people get placed into categories so we can learn who our enemies are. Our anger has driven this. So we categorize people in whatever ways that we want, ways that we disagree with, and then all of a sudden they become a category instead of a person, and it's raka, fool, less than. And when a culture affirms that your, your primary identity is something other than God's child, and that identity that is different than you just being God's child, God's created child or God's died for child, when that becomes something different, and that category either makes you my enemy or my friend, but most often it makes you my enemy, we have gone far from what God has intended. If we could begin to see people the way that God sees them. Yes, we'd have thoughts on secondary identity. Of course we would. God has plenty to say about race and gender and sexuality and work. But we would also begin to see them first through this powerful lens that says they are loved. They are died for. Uh, they are died for. They are desired And it would change our conversation because they wouldn't be a category anymore. They wouldn't be an enemy. They would be a person. They'd become a person that God created and God loves and God sent his son for. So what do we do? I'll tell you what I'm trying to do. I am trying to take my ball and go home. I'm committing myself myself to seeing people as people, as individuals. I'm done categorizing people. When you go to social media, when you go to the news, when you go to all of these other places, everybody's getting categorized into these different groups. And a category is easier to attack than a person. And so I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And I'm committing myself to seeing people as people. Loved by God, created by God, died for by the Son, real people. 
And I think when we begin to see people as real people and not just categories that we can attack, the conversation will change. Our tone will change. Our demeanor will change. Our world will change. But we have to understand this is not going to be easy because I know I sound like a cynic. I'm 47, that's my generation. We're the cynical ones. I know I sound like a cynic. There's big money in this. There's big money in you being angry. There's big money in categorizing people and then treating those categories as the enemy and and going after them and devaluing them and making them less than. There's huge money in this. But I'm telling you, we are the grace people. We are the loved people. We are the ones who understand that God created people in his image, male and female he created. We understand that God created people. Jesus died for people. We start to see people as people, not as categories. And it starts with the gospel. That a lot of times we understand that Jesus died for my sins, that Jesus loved me, he went to the cross. We tend to very much personalize this. But today I want to remind us that Jesus didn't just die for me, he died for you. He didn't just die for you, he died for them. He he did that for humanity and for us. And so I want to encourage us to see the gospel and to begin to view people through the lens of the gospel so that we won't see them as categories to be defeated, but as people to be loved. And you might disagree with choices still. Of course we do. Right? We were just disagreeing with choices with our kids yesterday, right? This morning even, right? Of course we disagree with choices. And we conversate about choices. And we say what we think is true. But we begin to view people through the lens They are a child of God. They are loved by him, and he died for them. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we receive communion today, um, I want to pray that this wouldn't be a thing that we just receive for ourselves, but that it would be a thing, it would be a lens-shaping truth. That you died for me, you love me, but you died for us. And that we would kind of give up on this experiment that our culture is engaged in of get everybody into a category and make them either a friend, but most often make them an enemy to be destroyed. And that we would start to see people the way that you see them as individuals, loved by you, gifted by you, valued by you. And so that we would see each person we interact with not as a category, (laughs) but as a person. Help us to see your people as people. People are supposed to be loved and cared for and valued. We can fight with a category. As a matter of fact, it encourages us The very mindset encourages us to fight the category. But when we see people the way that you do as people, it changes every single thing. And this is the moment in our service that most affirms this truth. You love every person. You died for every person. You created every person. And just intrinsically, every single person has value. 
Would you help us to see your children that way? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now. And like I said, this is, this is going to challenge us to start to see people differently. Um, because Jesus didn't come for, you know, to categorize everybody. He came for every person that they could know that they are loved and cared for and that he was going to die for them. So we're going to receive uh, some bread that represents Jesus' body and some juice that represents his blood. We can just kind of hold on to those and thank God that he died for us, but also thank him that he died for us, for us as individuals and for the world, um, and that we would begin to see people as we leave this place in a different way. Uh, and then I'll come back up, and we'll receive communion together as a church family. His body given for us. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't come and give your life for categories. You, you came and gave your life for people. And so I want to pray that we would leave this place and we would begin to see people the way that you see people. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, let's go ahead and stand up for the closing of my song. God bless you guys. Make me a vessel.